Okay, today I'm going to be reading in Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 12. Starting in verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he, he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. <clears throat> Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today and we thank you for the many ways that you have blessed us. We are truly, uh, as believers, among those blessed in the world. And, and as people who are believers in this country, we are blessed so much more uh, than most of the rest of the world. We take that for granted, Father, and I pray that you would strengthen us and help us to remember our brothers and sisters around the world who struggle against real persecution, who, for whom belief is a life and death situation. God, I pray and I ask your spirit to be present with us here today, that you would fill us, that you would give us open eyes and open ears, minds that are hungry for your word, hearts that desire not just to hear but to do. We pray, Lord, that you be with Jackie as he brings us the word. We thank you, Father, again for the many, many ways that you have blessed us. We ask these things for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> normally when I study and prepare for a message, my goal is uh, three pages. If I know if my notes went longer than three pages, I have more than one message. So, <clears throat> I have more than three pages again. But we shall endeavor to persevere and arrive at the conclusion in verse 12. What we're looking at is the introduction to the longest section of teaching of Jesus in the Bible. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. I call this the Discourse of Discipleship. <clears throat> He's discussing what it is to be a disciple. What does it look like to be a disciple? And there are things that we have to grapple with, things we need to comprehend. His <clears throat> main thesis... For this 
Sermon on the Mount is in chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you had to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Now for people, the problem is, the people thought they were the most righteous of all. They did not understand that we are what the Bible would call miserable wretches in need of a savior. And if we spend all our time painting the tomb, we will be whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And the, this is part of the teaching that Christ is <clears throat> laying across for us. When we hear, as we're going to hear, chapter 5 through 7, we're going to hear several challenging statements. And we're not going to make it to chapter 7, don't worry. But we're going to hear many challenging statements. And as we do, the point of the challenging statement <clears throat> isn't for you to throw your, your Bible on the ground and say, I can't do this. You should have known that before we started. What it should drive you to is I need Christ and a constant pursuit of Jesus Christ every day of my life. That's how we endure. That's how we make it. So he begins, it says in verse 1, he saw the crowds. We talked about this last time. He went up to the mountain where he sat down and his disciples came to him. So we know who he's talking to. He's talking to his disciples. Will there be a crowd? Yes. But who is he speaking to? His disciples. This is a word for his disciples. It says he opened up his mouth and he taught them. Grammatically, the them is the disciples. He's teaching the disciples. And he's laying out for them what maybe you have heard called the Beatitudes. Attitudes that we ought to be. He's laying out for us the things he wants us to recognize. They show us. It's looking into the mirror of self and recognizing that when I look into the mirror of self, I need Christ in the mirror with me. I need him. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The first one and the eighth one both have a present tense associated. It's a promise for right now. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we talked about that last time. That poor is the absolute destitute reality that there's nothing we're bringing. And he applies it. Where, where is it? Where are we poor? In our spirit. The Bible, Paul would write to us in Ephesians, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Okay? Not a lot of activity there. We're dead in our trespasses and sin, but Christ did what? He made us alive. He made us alive. <clears throat> we are poor in spirit. The second one we looked at last time, blessed are those who mourn. And we talked about the reality that life on this world, Jesus said... Here you will have tribulation. You're going to have problems, troubles, right? Sometimes you won't be able to pay the bills. Maybe you won't have food. Maybe you'll be homeless. I don't know what all the things will be, but you will endure times of suffering and mourning. And what is God's promise to them? It's a passive promise, which means God will comfort you. You have a future promise where the Lord says he will wipe away how many tears? 
Okay, now why does the Bible say that? It's not because when we see Jesus, we're going to be weeping for all the hurtful things we went through. He is saying all those pains you carry with you, all the hurts and the troubles that go through your mind that are a part of your life, all of those he is going to make new. You're going to have a moment, not a corporate moment, where you're standing with a million people in a crowd and you feel like the person talking doesn't see you. You're going to stand before your Savior face to face. He will touch you. He will wipe away every hurt. So he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted by the Lord. We also talked about the reality, right, that God brings comfort today. We talked about the concept as we look at this Sermon on the Mount, that these are already and not yet. We see we get a taste of it, but the fulfillment, the best part is yet to come. Right? We're on the main course. Dessert comes later. You guys like, if you like dessert the best. If you don't like dessert the best, that metaphor won't work, so throw it away. <laughs> the best, the best is yet to come. We want to see the best that God has for us. So he will provide us individually comfort here. And then he also asks ask us, you and I, here to also be a voice of comfort through our healing, our the pain that God has brought us through, you can voice that to someone else and help them in their pain. Scripture would say that we are to comfort those with the comfort which we received when the Lord God comforted us. So we want to also be like a a vessel, an outpouring of God's comfort for those who mourn. And there's a fair amount of mourning in the world, right? There's been a fair amount of pain. I love what John Piper has a, a thing online. If, if you've ever liked Shane and Shane's song, what's that song I like, babe? Come on. Though you slay me. Thanks. Thanks, Jordan. <laughs> So, so though you, though you, though you slay me, if you guys get a chance, go go online and watch it. It's beautiful. But the whole point of it is, our pain is not random. It's not just pain for pain's sake. God is accomplishing things. Maybe we don't understand, but He will bring comfort. And we look forward to the promise of the comfort that will come. Verse five. I was supposed to last time. I didn't. So we're caught up. Verse 5 says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, people always struggle with meekness. We always want to correlate meekness with weakness. And that's not what meekness is. Meekness is power under control. But sometimes understanding meekness, you can understand a word better by what it's not. The antonym for meek is revenge. The opposite of meek is revenge. And if we can kind of get that in our mind, we'll, we can recognize that this is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is often associated with humility. Because revenge is often associated with pride. 
Most of the time we want revenge because somebody stepped on our pride. And our pride screams out for vengeance. But the scripture would say, give way to wrath. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Does God know better than us how to deal with that? Yeah, for sure. I I just know 99.9, and if there's more nines after that, percent of the time, I don't have all the information. I don't understand the whole picture. I want to, I want to, we'll see in a moment, I just want peace. I don't want revenge. And this is an attitude that the Lord is saying will inherit the earth. Now, most of the world would say what inherits the earth is strength. The stronger you are, the bigger the army. I mean, Russia is expanding its territories now. What's the goal? Ultimately, maybe it is to, to hold down the whole earth. But has that ever worked yet? Just so you know, human kingdoms have never been able to hold down the earth. It doesn't stop them from trying, but they've never been successful. We can see in history one failure after another, after another, after another. Man doesn't have the capability because our world is backwards from God's. So God says, blessed are the meek. And in Psalm 37, I love this section. Uh, to remember I told you when we're looking at these beatitudes and the whole Sermon on the Mount, the discourse on discipleship, you have God the Word giving commentary on the Word of God. Every point that Jesus is going to bring up as we go through this section is something that has been discussed in the Old Testament. It's something that has, the, the groundwork has already been laid, and now Jesus is laying understanding, comprehension over it for his disciples that they would understand how it would work. In Psalm 37, verse 7, it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. For some of you today, that is a direct word from God for you. In case you didn't know. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Did you hear what it said before that? It said what about him? Spend a lot of time worrying about him? No. What did it say? Fret not, right? Fret not over the wicked guy who's doing bad things. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. I have to whisper that to myself every day. Forsake wrath. Forsake wrath. Why? Because the wrath of man will never accomplish the righteousness of God. And my wrath has never been, it may be justified, but it has never made anything better. Ever. So I want to give way to wrath. Forsake wrath. He says, fret not yourselves. It tends only to evil. So when we worry about all these things that are beyond your control, does it ever make it better? The long nights where you don't sleep? Does that make it better? Does it get better when we worry and we stress out over the things? Not usually, no. It doesn't make it better. What's he say? He says, fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. But listen to what he promises in verse 9. But the evildoers will be cut off. And those who wait on the Lord will inherit the land. 
you get the connection? Waiting on the Lord, that becomes a picture of meekness. Not striving for your own plan or purpose. Anybody ever went out and tried to make something happen? By golly, I've prayed about this long enough and the Lord ain't done it yet. So I'm going to make this happen. How'd that work out for everybody? It's, it has not ever worked out for me. So he's saying, look, we want to wait on the Lord. We want to be those who are still before the Lord, waiting patiently. Verse 11 in Psalm 37, just in case you're not sure about the connection yet. Verse 11 of Psalm 37 says, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So the beginning of that psalm, he's describing what meekness is. Those who wait on the Lord. Who don't give in to wrath, but who wait for God's deliverance. Who's going to put down the evil and wicked world? Who's going to do it? God's going to do it. You guys don't seem convinced. Who's going to put down wickedness in the world? God's going to put it down. Now, he gave us a job. And the job was not to be the justice seekers for the world. His job was to go into all the world and do what? Make disciples of how many people? Every nation, right? To baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To teach them the things Jesus taught us. And to know he is with me even to the end of the age. I have a job to do, right? So I want to, is God going to do his part? Yeah, will there be a day Will there be a day where there's no more wickedness? Yeah. And in the meantime, will sometimes that wickedness touch me and cause me to mourn? Yes. But when it happens, what do I do? I receive comfort from the Lord and I look forward to the future reality that he's going to wipe away every tear. And I recognize that it's the meek, those who wait on the Lord, who will inherit the earth. We want to be of those who wait upon the Lord. Romans twelve seventeen says, repay no one evil for evil. That's not exactly what you hear in the world, is it? Do unto others whatever they did to you. They always like to talk about the eye for an eye. You ever hear that? The eye for an eye will make a world full of blind people. Well, not if you stop. Eye for an eye, just so you know, the Lex Talionis, it's not in my notes, so this is free time for you. The Lex Talionis, the eye for an eye, is a statement of mercy. Because man never, when he goes against someone who's done something wrong to him, never provides equal punishment for what was done. He always goes a little bit over, don't he? You heard of the Hatfields and the McCoys? <clears throat> Why does that feud still go on? Why do we still fight with countries today? Because they do this and we do that. But because we did that, we did a little more because we've got to get a little bit ahead in the, in the teeter-totter of justice. So then they go a little beyond, then they go a little beyond, then they go a little beyond. That's not the Lex Talionis, just so you know. The Lex Talionis says, you pay what you ought to pay for what you've done. If you took their eye, then it costs an eye. You get what I'm saying? 
Not if you took their eye, they chop off your head. That's not how that works. So it's a statement. It's a statement of mercy. He says in Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What is honorable? Uh, Jordan and I were talking, I think it was earlier this week, uh, we were talking of, about some stuff anyways, about pleasing the God, and, or about pleasing God. And I said, I like to think about pleasing God like honor. I want to do things that honor him. Like the action I'm about to do, is that going to honor the Lord or not? And then that being the, the weight, you know, is this something I should do or shouldn't do? You know, am I, can I honor God in this thing? Repay no one evil for evil, but do what is honorable in the sight of all. Do what glorifies the Lord. First Peter 3, 4 says, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a meek and quiet spirit. This is the, the section in Peter that talks about wives to your husbands and what if your husband's an unbelieving husband. He says, oh, let your adorning be, be <clears throat> the hidden person of heart which, where uh, is the imperishable beauty of a meek and quiet spirit. Of a woman who loves God, who is trusting God in, in, in relation to her husband who's not saved. That's kind of the context in 1 Peter 3. And what did God, what did God call it? He called it meek. What's the meekness of the spirit? It's the one who says, I'm waiting on the Lord. God's going to move. God's going to move. He's going to accomplish the work. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him. Right? This is the, the ministry of restoration in the church. When someone has done you wrong, you should restore him. How? With a spirit of meekness, gentleness. Why, why should it be a, a spirit of meekness? So that you would not always also be tempted. Sometimes what we want to do is we want, we want to get justice. So you stomped on my toe, I want to stomp on your toe. You punched me in the arm, I want to punch you in the arm. And that's what we think is reconciliation. But God says reconciliation is something that ought to be done in a spirit of gentleness, meekness. I'm going to wait on the Lord. The Lord judge between you and me. It's not my place. I'm not the bringer of justice. Or vengeance. So I will wait on the Lord. They shall inherit the earth. Verse 6 he says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. This is dealing with a continual recognition of the importance of being right with God. And here we're going to talk about righteousness, just a little bit about a couple of the important points for us to understand about righteousness. Before we do, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for something? That's an intense desire, right? To have an intense desire to be right with God. Do you have an intense desire to be in a right relationship with God? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst you ever been real hungry? 
Now, most of us in the U.S., maybe we've, we've not gone through it. But man, if you've been real hungry, you understand how bad you want something to eat. Give me some food. I want some food. You want that. It says in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So the psalmist says, I want you, God, like I was dying of thirst. And I, I want you like I would want the water. As a deer panteth for the water. Some verses I can only do in King James, sorry. So my soul longeth after you. I want you, Lord. This is a, these are verses of strong desire and pursuit. Psalm 145, verse 15 says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Did you hear that? We should listen to that again. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Are you a living thing? You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. So the idea of learning that our satisfaction will come through our desire of the Lord. It's not going to come through your stuff. Sorry. You guys should have already figured that out. You got stuff. On any given Saturday, I can drive around and look at you trying to get rid of some of your stuff. Right? The stuff that no longer satisfies you. If it does still satisfy you, you want more than 50 cents for it, and you're going to keep it. Right? But if, but if you've recognized that didn't satisfy me, or it did for a time, but then, you know, it just becomes another thing. Another of our many things that we gather around us. But the scripture would tell us satisfaction comes from desiring the Lord. Him. He is what satisfies. Now, whenever we talk about righteousness, I guess we ought to take a moment and talk about the two aspects of righteousness. There's two parts, if you will, of righteousness. One is positional righteousness. That means those who are saved. You are positionally righteous, right? A scripture like Romans 10. Romans 10, 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's speaking for Israel, is that they may be saved. <clears throat> for I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to the righteousness of God. There is no righteousness of our own. Positional righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 right, says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for me, that I might become what? 
the righteousness of God. I was dead in my trespasses and sin. He made me alive in Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ imputed to me, just like the righteousness of Abraham. When the Bible says, Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Positional righteousness means being saved. If I'm saved, I am positionally righteous because I'm in Christ Jesus. That's what being saved is all about. I am in Christ Jesus. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, <clears throat> you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's not complicated. We make it complicated. It's not complicated. We confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts, and we are positionally righteous. I am now in Christ Jesus. He clothes me with his righteousness. I'm not righteous. He makes me righteous. Does that make sense? Okay, this is positional righteousness. Last verse uh, on that, Galatians 2, 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Righteousness is not through the law. We are positionally righteous by our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? There, so that's the first part of righteousness. Righteousness is positional. <clears throat> it's also called justification. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That's how we are saved. The second part of righteousness is practical. Practical righteousness. This is the righteousness that we read about that sometimes causes people a little confusion. This righteousness will, we would read about in the book of James. James 2.24. You see that a person is justified or made righteous by works and not by faith alone. Now everybody goes, what? That's the opposite of what you just said. Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. So when you're positionally righteous, when I'm in Christ Jesus and I'm clothed in his righteousness, that righteousness is going to begin to touch the things I do. Right? I'm clothed in Christ. 1 John 2.29 says, If we know that he, Jesus Christ, is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Because otherwise, the Bible says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Right? So we enter into Christ Jesus by faith. He clothes us in his righteousness. That's the root of faith. The fruit of faith is the things we do after that. Don't confuse the fruit and the root. You're not saved by what you do after that, but what you do after that reflects your salvation. Does that make sense? 
There are, there are things that change in the life of a believer. 1 John 3, 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Because the Bible already told us, how many will practice righteousness apart from Christ? None. Now, I'm not saying right things by human standards. I'm talking about a right relationship with God. If you don't know God as your Lord and Savior, you will not pursue a righteous state with God. Okay? So we're pursuing a righteous state with God. 1 John 3.10 It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You remember we went through this when we went through 1 John. Right? You say you love God, but you hate your brother. And John says, that, that doesn't work. If you are positionally righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, then you will love your brother as you love God. Because you're in Christ Jesus, and that's what Christ Jesus does. Are you tracking? So when we talk about blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, this is a pursuit of reflecting who God is. It's a pursuit of reflecting. I, I didn't pursue God before, before I got saved. God pursued me. And in God's pursuit of me, what was accomplished is he opened my eyes and he opened my heart. And all of a sudden, I wanted him. I, I wanted him desperately, so I'm like calling on him, Lord, save me. And what does he do? He saves you. Now I have been clothed in his righteousness. As I move forward, my pursuit in life is to rightly reflect the one who died for me. Do you look like Jesus? Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for looking like Jesus, for he will be satisfied. You ever pursued things that didn't satisfy? For sure. So I want to be one who is pursuing that right reflection of Christ. I want people to look at me like they looked at the disciples when they brought the disciples up in trial because they were walking around Jerusalem preaching Christ, and they brought him up on trial, and they stood him before them. And the first thing the Pharisees say is, these guys are a bunch of idiots. Oh, it doesn't say that in English. It says it like this. They looked at them and decided that these were unlearned men. Come on. Come with me a little bit. They're not saying... Nobody in those days said, they're unlearned. That's not what that meant. These guys are morons. But what they say next? They said, but they were with who? Jesus. And it's then in the book of Acts, as the Spirit has come upon the disciples and they're beginning to, to minister in the power of the Spirit, that people start to see Jesus in them, right? 
They start to see Jesus in the things that they say and in the things that they're doing, and they become a reflection of who Christ was. Before that, what will we say about the disciples? They're always arguing over who's the greatest. But they don't ever do that in the book of Acts. We don't see him in the book of Acts, Peter saying, you know, guys, I'm better than all of you. Just do it like I say. That's not what we see. We see them behaving like the one they followed. Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for he will be satisfied. I don't become right with God by the good things I do. But when I become right with God, I want to look like him. I want to talk like him. I want to have the same attitudes he had. And the crazy thing is that when that's the reality of our life, I'm not distracted by the same things that distract me now. I find that fades away because my pursuit is Christ. Well, he's going to say this in chapter 6 when we get there, but he's going to tell us that we ought to seek first the kingdom of God. And all those other things we're worried about, he says, they'll be added. But seek ye first the kingdom of God. Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for he shall be satisfied. Verse 7 says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. What is this? Well, the merciful are those who have a forgiving reaction toward those who fail. Have you ever needed someone to have a forgiving reaction toward you? The merciful, biblically, are those who have received mercy. If you have received mercy, you will be merciful. Anybody here not receive mercy from the Lord? Has God held you accountable? Everything you ever done wrong? Has the Lord ever given you what you deserve? Mostly he gives me not what I deserve. That's grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. We want to have a forgiving reaction toward those who fail us. Blessed are the merciful. Why? They'll receive mercy. See, there's this thing in the Bible people don't like to talk about, about forgiveness and mercy. And we have this thing as human beings that we think it's our job to withhold that to other people. So you don't get to withhold forgiveness from anyone if you want to receive forgiveness from Christ. If you don't want to be forgiven by Christ, that's fine. Hold on to whatever you want to hold on to. But this is what God says. I will forgive you like you forgive others. Ought to be a little bit of a wake up, no? I want to stand in the line of mercy. And I occasionally have been in trouble for extending mercy. But I'm 
going to do it. Sorry, be mad. God bless you. Uh, I want to be merciful. I want to <clears throat> extend mercy. He says in Psalm 18, verse 25, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. In Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 103, verse 11, he says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his, God's, steadfast love toward those who fear him. The steadfast love, that's the Hebrew word chesed. It's the Hebrew version of agapeo in the, in the Greek. It is a faithful love. He will not withhold his faithful love from those who fear him. Verse 12, you guys know this verse. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far has God removed our sin? Wait a minute, is it going to come up just the next time we do something wrong? Does God bring up your past failures? Does he sit down and say, you know what, you know, I know, I know you say you're sorry this time, but you remember last week? No, does God do that? Do you know why he says as far as the east is from the west? Because you can go east forever. And you can go west forever. He didn't say north and south because if you go north, eventually you end up going south. But you can go east forever and never go west. You can go west forever and never go east. So when he says as far as the east is from the west, these things don't come back. When you have been forgiven, you have been utterly forgiven. In fact, he's going to liken it to a father who has compassion on his children. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God has compassion. And then he has this little phrase I love the most. He remembers our frame. We're dust. I know we think we're not. But God looks around and says, look at all those little dirt clods running around doing their thing. As a father pities his children, he has compassion on us because he knows how we're bent. He knows we're dirt clods. And he has steadfast love, faithful love, Still, doesn't go away. If this is how the Lord is toward me, who am I to withhold? Go back to meekness. Remember what meekness is? We have a desire for revenge. You've done me wrong. I want to do you wrong in some way. I want to cause you pain. You cause me pain. We want to be meek. We don't want to walk in that attitude of revenge. I'll get you back for what you've done to me. So he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let it go. It's not doing you any good anyway. And when you do, it feels so amazing to not have that 
on anymore? I got to go pick up Hannah today in Salt Lake City. So I'm going to take my truck. Those of you who have been in my truck can mourn for her silently. A few weeks ago, we had a bunch of really, really, really old meat in the freezer here at church. And I hate to throw anything away. So I said, I'll take that old meat. I'll eat it. You should see some of the things I eat. Just so you know, Levi once left a Juanita's burrito out on his desk for like three days. Don't moan. It was good. (laughs) It was good. So I took this old, old, old meat and I put it in my truck and forgot about it. And one day, I'm walking up to the truck, and I'm wondering, what is leaking out of the back? So I open the door. That's the closest to smelling like a dead person in your vehicle you'll ever want to get. So those of you who have been in the truck know, Kathy, since COVID, can't smell. So I kept thinking when I was going to get in trouble for this, I never did. So she'd go skiing and take her, her pals up skiing, and I'm like, Nobody complains about being in a truck. She's like, why would they complain? Smells like a dead person in there, hon. (laughs) So I'm going to go pick up Hannah. Now, we've scrubbed and scrubbed and sprayed and scrubbed and put things in. I've tried almost everything I've heard of. Go online and search for how to get dead people out of your car. (laughs) So far, so far, I haven't won yet. I haven't, haven't gone, woo, this is amazing. But listen... The day that's gone, I'll go, man, oh, it's so great to not have that here anymore. And that's how it'll be when you finally let go of that dead stuff rotting around you. You let that stuff go and you extend mercy. And the Bible says what you will have is a sweet smelling aroma of the sacrifice of Christ all around your life, way better than the smell of dead stuff, right? Blessed are the merciful. He goes on, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is giving comment on Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is a psalm of ascent. It says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully. Now, don't forget all the things we've discussed about before. You don't make yourself righteous. Who does that? God does that. The expression out of my life then is a pursuit to be like God. That's the fruit that comes out of a life that has been changed by a relationship with God. So how do I have a pure heart? Well, he says in this Psalms, one who does not lift up his soul to what is false. See, that whole idea of lifting up is what we start to get filled up with pride. You ever get proud of who you are now? You have that proud list of all the things you would never do. And... 
Those are the things, that kind of stuff being lifted up with this pride in your life, swearing deceitfully like, like for somehow you, you wouldn't, you're not capable of that. Dude, you're crazy. I once ministered to a guy and uh, he was in a marriage and I really felt strongly that he uh, was going to struggle being faithful. Now, I said that because being an unfaithful person, I know what it looks like. I've seen it before. I wore those clothes. I walked that road. So I'm, I'm telling him, listen, you're, the things you're doing, the road you're walking on, I'm going to tell you where that goes. I've been on that road before. Here's where that goes. And he said, oh, I could never do that. Well, he's on marriage five now. But being pure in heart is having the ability to recognize who you are. Who are you? I want to have a cleansed relationship with the Lord. I want to be honest with God. What makes my heart pure? When I come before the Lord and I say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When I come to the Lord and I say, God, I need, I need you. I, I, I'm hungering and thirsting after your righteousness. I need, I need you in me. I have this cleansed relationship with you. Because Psalm 24 says in verse 5, He will receive blessing from the Lord. And he will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. Not because he made himself good. But because he opened his heart honestly to God. That's a pure heart. That's not a false heart. The heart that says this is who I am. 1 John 3, 3 tells us everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. What's the hope 1 John 3 is talking about? The hope of seeing the Lord. Always ready to see the Lord. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The aim of our charge is a love that issues from a pure heart. Not a false heart. We don't have to try to be false or fake with one another. We want to be pure. So we are pure by recognizing what we need from God. What we need from Him to cleanse us and purify us. Because you see... James would say, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. So cleanse your hands, O sinners, and purify your hearts. The next phrase says, double-minded. Why does it say double-minded? Because sometimes we struggle with this is something I'm going to do, not something God's going to do. Don't be double-minded. I know everything that ever comes into my life that's good is going to be because God did this in my life. Not from me, not my gifts, not my talents. It needs to be him. I don't want to start thinking too, I don't want to start believing the press. You guys know what I mean? I want to go low. I want to have a pure heart. I want to have a pure heart. How do we do that? Hebrews eleven twenty seven. Talking about Moses, it says, When he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Why? Because he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God. How did Moses do it? He endured as one who is seeing God. Where is he seeing God? In his circumstances. Where is he seeing God? In his struggles. Where is he seeing God? All around him. Where is he seeing God? Everywhere. He sees the fingerprints and the presence of God all over his life because he belongs to God. Blessed is the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Being a peacemaker means making reconciliation with your enemies. Remember the merciful ones that came earlier? Being merciful. Peacemaker, those who want to make peace. Isaiah 54, 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. Because God is a peacemaker. He's made peace with all who were at enmity with him. At war with the Lord. Psalm 34, 14 says, Turn away from evil and do, do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Pursue peace. Go after peace. Not vengeance. Not wrath. Go after peace. You ever try to get peace with somebody who can't hear you? And you're just sure if they would just understand the things I'm saying, then, then we can have peace. Well, just abandon the plan and just go for the peace part. Because our desire for having someone hear us, they, they, sometimes they can't hear us. So give them peace. Give them peace. Romans 12, 18 says, Whenever possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain. Doesn't say eager to maintain the spirit of rightness. I'm right. And as soon as you understand I'm right, then we can have peace. That won't happen. Eager to maintain unity in the bonds of peace. And then finally, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. This is another present promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a realization that persecution will come. Will there be persecution? Will there be persecution we will endure? Yes. Does that have anything to do with the tribulation period? No. Does the, tri the word tribulation is just a word that means problems. Right? It's just when we talk about the great tribulation, we're talking about the wrath of God. Are the children of God appointed to the wrath of God? No, because they're covered in the blood of Christ. Okay? So you're not appointed to the wrath of God. Hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Does that mean we won't ever suffer persecution? No. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake because of your relationship to Christ. That's how you're righteous, right? 
You're not righteous because you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't chew, and you don't date girls who do. <laughs> That's not what makes you righteous. You are righteous because of your relationship with Christ. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a citizen in the kingdom of heaven today. Will there be a day that will be fully realized? For sure. But it doesn't revoke your citizenship today. I care more about that citizenship than I do about the one I have here. We are a citizen of heaven. Now, Jesus looks to his disciples while he's talking about this, and the pronoun changes. I don't want you to miss it. So he said, blessed are those, he's talking like, you know, just people who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then he looks to his disciples and he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So apostles are going to be treated just as the prophets were, right? With the exception of John, they're all going to be killed. They're all going to give their lives, just like the prophets. Because people won't stand to hear God's word. So, what does he tell us? He gives us the extent we can expect when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's the kind of persecution you can expect if you want to be those who stand with Christ. He also gives an exhortation. Rejoice and be glad. Be glad. Well, it's hard to be glad, Lord. They're, they're persecuting me. I don't like the persecuting part. But he says rejoice and be glad. Why? For your future is good. Great is your reward in heaven. Where are you living for? I got a lot of stuff in my garage. At least once a year I drag it all out and I think, why do I have all this garbage? And I load it on a trailer, these things that I couldn't live without however many years ago, and I haul them to the dump and I throw them away. And next year I'm going to do it again. And the next year I'm going to do it again. The treasures that we ought to be living for are rewards in heaven. Those are a glorious thing to live for. James would say, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness, having its full effect, you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In your times of struggle and persecution, God is perfecting you. Trust him. Blessed are the pure in heart, the merciful, even those who are persecuted. Because God is with you. He is watching over you. Great will your reward in heaven be. So what's our example? 
for it. So they persecuted the prophets before you. Hebrews says it like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all those who have gone before us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father until you arrive. And on that day, there's nothing you wouldn't give to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. And as we just take our time, as we go through this, this section on the Sermon on the Mount, the discourse for disciples, God, we want to follow your direction. We want to be the men and women that you're calling us to be, that you're asking us to be. We want to have the attitudes that rightly reflect who you are. So we can image forth who you are accurately to a world that doesn't know you so that God can use us as tools to draw the lost to come and desire him who can satisfy. God, I pray that we would just spend time throughout this week just meditating on these beatitudes that you lay out for us chewing on it thinking long and hard about the promises that you're giving us in your word but this is what being a disciple provides this is what we have as disciples of jesus christ oh god you indeed are able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine according to the power that works in us by your spirit. So God, I pray this morning, Lord, that it be our desire to rightly reflect the one we follow. To have the right attitudes where my attitude is wrong, Lord, bring me to a state of confession, repentance, renewal, it's not, this is not a list to tell me, look how you don't measure up. This is me looking in the mirror and saying, God, I want to be who you want me to be. I want to have the attitudes you want me to have. God, I pray that we would say and do the things that honor God, that bring restoration, wholeness, that bring peace. So God, may we, your people, be a source of these things. As we go from this place, Lord, I pray that you would help us be the men and women you're asking us to be. And as we have a time of prayer, as we close out in worship, 
I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bring those people who are struggling, who have questions, who have needs, who have desires. Somewhere around the outside of this sanctuary is someone who wants to pray with you, encourage you, help you, because this is what we do when we're family. In Jesus' name.